the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Wing Commander Retired Don Pollock. Don joined 41 Pilots Course RAAF in 1961. Previous to that, he'd been an industrial arts teacher in New South Wales. After graduation, Don was posted to transport aircraft, and in 1964, he joined the first Air Force contingent to Vietnam on caribous. He's some tales to tell about those early days in Vietnam. A lot of, by the seat of your pants, get the job done. Short of almost non-existent run ways, plenty of bullets, long hours, lots of flying, often scary and a very different social life. From Vietnam, then to New Guinea. Similar flying to Vietnam, except no bullets. Don had a big change of pace in 1967 when he became a flying instructor on jets. After that, a few more adventures were in store on choppers at RAAF Fairburn, including how Don describes it as one and a half crashes. Don then had a series of postings on choppers and finally Air Force Staff College. From 1979 to 1982, he was advisor to Chief of Air Force on air transport operations. Don resigned from the Air Force in 1982 with the rank of Wing Commander. His time after leaving the Air Force reads like a whirlwind from school teacher to managing snack bars to ag pilot more crashes to flight instructor managing many air displays and flight safety. Don's other interests are bushwalking, goal prospecting, aviation history, aviation stamps, flying displays, collector of aviation memorabilia, skiing cross country, reading history and survival training. G'day Don, nice to have your company. Thanks for your time today. Good morning Gareth. Now, you joined in 1961. Why did you join the Air Force and not the Navy or the Army or something else? <laughs> That's a trick question. No, it's not. <laughs> that wasn't on the script. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was you, why uh, did you choose the Air Force? I, um, I grew up in Quakers Hill, which was the uh, base for Schofield's aerodrome. My earliest recollection is lying on my back in a field of corn that my father had planted before he went away to the Second World War, I can remember seeing a Lockheed Hudson flying between the ears of the corn, up in the sky, of course, and I've just got this photograph of, in my memory, of, of an aircraft. I thought, I'd love to be there. Then, of course, living beside the airfield during the war, you saw many aircraft operating there, uh, both Australian and uh, British, American aircraft. And it just fascinated me, and I always wanted to be in the Air Force. So did the industrial arts teacher side of you, was that pre the Air Force or post the Air Force? Uh, Both, actually, but uh, pre the Air Force, I'd been told by a doctor that I I would never be able to fly. And uh, when I was 12, I'd had a minor accident. Anyway, years later, I um, met a chap in a bar, and he said... uh, come flying with me and 
I realised I couldn't. I explained my medical condition. He said, well, go to a doctor. And the doctor said, nothing wrong with you. And he would fly an aircraft. So um, uh, after having gained my uh, unlimited private pilot's licence, I applied for the Air Force. And on one day, I actually applied for the education officer's job, uh, for which I was qualified and a signaler's job, because I never thought I had the... Uh, the qualifications to become a pilot and when I went before the education board they said well you know you've got down here actually got a pilot's license don't you want to be a pilot and I said well yes please uh, but I've also applied for the signal which was on the same day at uh, Rushcutters Bay in Sydney so um, uh, passed, the, passed the signalers one and they said uh, uh, we're the same board for uh, a pilot, which do you want to be, a pilot or a signal? I said, pilot, please. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. So were you actually an industrial arts teacher in a secondary school? Is that Was that part of your yes, career? I've been trained as an industrial arts teacher at Sydney Technical College and various other colleges um, around the place uh, or various other, uh, there was Randwick Tech, Ultimo Tech and other things too. Yeah, sure. Uh, I did a stint at BHP and um, qualified, uh, ended up at Denali uh, in Sydney. And, and this shows you the vagaries of the public service system. Um, 21 of us graduated, two of us applied for the country and the other 19 applied for the city. What do you think happened? You, two of you got the city and 19 of you got the country. You're exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, the, I, moral of, the moral of that story is, Don, when you're dealing with the public service, always put down what you don't want rather than what you do want. It was incredible. Anyway, after six weeks, um, um, poor chap had um, lost his life, I believe, in the country. Uh, one chap was posted from Yas to fill that vacancy, and so there was a vacancy at Yas. I spent three wonderful years at Yas um, Junior High School, it was called then. Yeah. And uh, had a wonderful time, made many lifetime friends. Yeah, well, one of the great strengths of teaching is it trains you for everything. Hence, when you get into the Air Force, you're a very successful participant within the Air Force because you were a teacher. Well, I don't know about that, but I believe you were a teacher as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's no bias intended, Don. I wave my flag. I used to be. Now, you um, you get into, was it four, the number four pilots course? Is that the one, you, or 41 pilots 41. course? 41 pilots course, yes. Yeah, it just, started at the beginning what? of, uh, beginning of uh, January 1961. What are your memories of that course like? Uh, the, the camaraderie, we, we um, were very fortunate. We, we were probably one of the oldest courses to begin. We had one 27-year-old remaster from the Air Force. Over half of us, or more than half of us, had had uh, experience in industry or in various um, fields. And I, as I recall, I think there were only two who had come straight from high school. So we were quite a, 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 an older course. And when for, um, previous courses tried to uh, bastardise us, uh, as was common in those days, we told them to stuff off. Uh, you know, we weren't going to play those games. And it's interesting because if you recall just oh, 20 years ago, I think it was, perhaps a little bit longer, there were investigations in the military services and it was found that the Air Force was the only one that didn't have the uh, bastardisation pro uh, process. 
Yeah, that's what makes the Air Force a good service to be involved in. Um, <laughs> you, so in 1961, you've got, you're doing the pilot's course. You graduate from that. At what point did you get transferred to transport aircraft and how did that occur? Prior to graduation, I think around about three weeks prior to graduation at Pierce, you were asked to apply for where you want to go. I'd uh, done well at uh, Point Cook. I'd done averagely so far as um, jet training was concerned, but part of me wanted to become a fighter pilot. But I sort of reasoned that given the history, fighters weren't ever going to go to war. And um, so I applied for transport, one, because I thought, well, I'm going to get around the place. Also, I had a girlfriend in Perth at that stage, so I thought I'm going to see her more often. So I applied for transports, but most of the, or some of the guys who applied for transport in those days did it because they saw the, the Air Force as being a cheap way to get into um into commercial flying, Qantas, if you wish. Okay, yeah. The training puts you into the pilot seat of a transport aircraft, is that right? Exactly. A a tactical, small tactical transport aircraft. At that point, had you had anything at all to do with um, helicopters? I'd done two years in in the CMF services. Just going back to one of the questions you asked before, I can remember sitting in a dugout. It had been raining for about seven days. It was very uncomfortable. And I saw Ford uh, Sabres fly past in a fire demonstration force. And I thought, they're going to be warm tonight uh, in a bed. And here I am in this dugout. So sort of perhaps in the background of my mind was that thought. You want to get into the jet, I understand. Did you become, am I right in assuming you you did become, the first Air Force contingent sent to Vietnam and it was on caribous? That's correct. I was captain of the second aircraft to land, which is a story in itself. And the first aircraft was um, captained by uh, squadron leader Chris Sugden, Suggy to everyone. And he'd also been senior officer of the second Kobu ferry, and I was also on the second Kobu ferry. So the members of the second Kobu ferry got to know Sugden quite well. And when they selected people for Vietnam, uh, we volunteered, but uh, at the same time we heard later that Sugden, in fact, put our names down. He'd selected the group. If you can get to take your mind back to that, you volunteered. What were the thoughts of you and the others that did the volunteering about what Vietnam was or what it was going to be? What was going through your mind before you actually got there? I've always been a student of history. Vietnam had interested me. I'd actually studied about what was then called French Indochina Mm-hmm. Um, for the leaving certificate in 1954. So I had some background knowledge there of the history and the geography of the place. But then gradually it came more and more in the consciousness of, um, if you're studying Southeast Asian history uh, of everybody, uh, and I'm talking about pre-Vietnam days now, there was hardly anything in the newspapers uh, about Vietnam. But occasionally there was an article uh, in those days mainly about a, a man called Ngo Zim. Mm-hmm. who was the um, president with his wife called Dragon Lady. And uh, he was a staunch Catholic. She was a very forthright lady, uh, very much in the character of, um, uh, they called her the Empress of China, Kain Kai-shek's wife. 
and she'd gone across and captured the American imagination while the dragon lady, Zoom's wife, did exactly the same. And she was very significant in capturing support, if you like, from the free world to go and support uh, their cause in Vietnam. Let's just focus predominantly now on on Vietnam, if we can. The Caribou Ferry, uh, during the Indonesian confrontation, uh, and you land in Bali for fuel, but that creates a difficulty. Can you remember that? You're interned or...? Yes, I remember some things you recall very, very clearly, but in the passage of time, 60 years, uh, the details become a little bit vague. But I've just checked up recently. It's interesting, um, in the same incident that you just mentioned, different people see different things or remember different things. I thought we were there for around about three hours, and this was verified just the other day when one one of the um, loadmasters, he was required to have how much time they were on the ground there, and he dogged that it was two and a half hours, but he had no other recollection of what he did on the ground. But talking to two other, um, uh, or one other pilot who was there, because uh, there are not many surviving now, um, he recalls that the Indonesians came and said, you have to come with us. So uh, the crew, everybody, uh, got into a bus and they took us only about 300 metres and there's a bit of a compound there. They put us in the compound but they'd taken Sugden away, our, our senior officer away, and he was gone for about two and a quarter hours, as it appears. When he returned, he said, we've got 10 minutes to get off the airfield, go. Now, uh, even though they'd taken in this bus to this compound, we could quite clearly see the helicopters, they, sorry, the caribous, they weren't very far from, um, from where they had us in this compound. And... I was fairly fit, but I was always short-legged. You, you can't become a, uh, an antelope if you've got short legs. And, uh, <laughs> Very true. But I can remember my legs were just microscopically longer and younger than my captain, Bernie Parker. And Bernie said, you go and get the engines running and I'll do the chocks, etc." So I was racing away got to the aircraft, leapt on board, started both the engines, by which time both the loadmasters anyway and the um, and uh, Bernie Park had arrived, they had the chocks out and we actually had the aircraft, we were first off because I'm a rather frightened sort of bloke, you know what I mean? <laughs> so if, if someone said you, you've got 10 minutes to go, yes, sir. We'll go. <laughs> yeah, we went. And what had actually happened anyway transpired was um, we were told later that it was a problem with our diplomatic clearance. They didn't expect us to come into Bali. The Russians, big Russian helicopter and Russians around the place anyway, so who knows what was going on there. The Cold War was on, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. When Sugden went away, he went to the area commander's office and the area commander said, you know, you've created a problem for me, mumble, mumble, mumble. They talked for quite some time. Well, it must have been about two hours, during which time it became evident to Sugden that he had quite a problem, that they weren't going to release us. Whereupon, and Sugden was a, a very quiet sort of bloke, but a great thinker and a very clear thinker. And we had on board a, a tiger, a stuffed tiger, which had been given to us in uh, Jakarta uh, by a senior member of the um, uh, of the Indonesian government, 
and to be taken as a personal present uh, for the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs in Australia, whose name escapes me at the moment. I think it may have been Hasluck. Hasluck. Anyway, um, Sugden first of all said, uh, you know, we have this present for our foreign minister and perhaps your ministers would be upset if it weren't delivered. Uh, we sort of had the thought going with the area command and then Sugden said, and I was up here in 1948 in the Committee of Three Nations assisting uh, you to gain your independence. And when they got talking further, it was found out that they'd both been at the same place uh, when mm. independence was awarded. So, fait accompli, and the uh, area commander said, how long do you need to get off the ground? Suggan said half an hour. He said, you have 15 minutes. So, by the time Suggy got to us, it was down to 10. That's why we had 10 minutes. And I just knew from his attitude that things were a bit serious. So, Yeah, yeah, okay. So is the next stop then supposed to be Vietnam after you've left Bali? No, we uh, landed Darwin. We returned to Richmond. Around about a week later, I think it was, or a few days later, they said definitely confirmed because when we were coming through Malaysia, that's when we'd actually heard that Caribous were going to go to Vietnam. So that was about a week prior to the Denpasar incident. And John Stahl and I had run down the lines because we knew Sugden was there and said, it's just been announced that we were going to Vietnam. Uh, can we come with you? And he said, well, if I'm CEO, yes, I'll, I'll consider it. And we found out later that, in fact, Sugden knew about it well before that anyway, but he keeping quiet about it. So anyway, we we returned to Australia. We're told we're going to Vietnam. Uh, We were given, um, I think it was two weeks pre-embarkation leave. Then we came back for a briefing. I might have it slightly out of sequence, but I can remember the briefing because the CEO came into the room and there was around about 20 of us in the room, I suppose, and uh, he said, you know, congratulations to you men who volunteered to go to Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. He sat down while the briefing went on, and then after he'd been there about 10 minutes, he went outside. He's gone for about half an hour and came back in the door, uh, absolutely shocked, and we knew something had happened. He said, gentlemen, we've just lost, I think it was uh, two, three, four caribou at Nara. And the way he said it, everybody was shocked. We thought, shit. Here we are, we haven't even started operations. We've already lost an aircraft and crew. And he said, but the crew is safe. And everybody thought, well, what the bloody hell are you worried about? So where, where was that lost? At Nowra. At Nowra, right, okay. Yep. So, And this is 1964? Are we still talking 1964? Or? Well, it would have been July 1964. Okay, July. So you, at what point... Then, do you, from that meeting, do you set off in the plane heading to Vietnam? Uh, the first contingent um, had to fly up civil. There were special orders about that. We had to uh, not mention to anybody that we were going to Vietnam as such. We uh, were in civilian clothes um, and we went uh, out of Sydney up to, um, I think we landed Singapore. And then uh, Singapore, we definitely, yeah, we changed in a small aircraft, two-engine aircraft, Fokker Friendship, flew up to Penang, uh, Butterworth base, and we were then to await the ferry 
I forget which ferry now, I think possibly the third or the fourth ferry to come through. And then we took those three aircraft uh, after a couple of days from mineralisation directly in Vietnam. Okay. Now, I, I've, I've read that uh, your arrival in Vietnam was during a cyclone and there's a number <laughs> of issues involved in <laughs> landing and coming in and seeing trees. Just take us through that incident. It's something I confess now, and one of the reasons why I've been so rigorous training younger pilots uh, in various situations. There are rules laid down, uh, and there's a reason for them. One of the rules is you never go below uh, your minimum instrument altitude, if you like, or your minimum descent altitude in cloud. That's why it's there. You don't go below it, uh, and um, if you do, you, you're going to get in the strife. Anyway, the background was they said there was a cyclone on over the, um, the sea there, and Sugden said, we're going. We thought, well, Sugden says, we're going, we're going. He went off. I followed him 10 minutes later, and uh, the first part of the flight was quite okay. It was sort of semi-visual. Then it gradually got a little bit rougher, not severe terms, but just a little bit rougher. Anyway, uh, Sugden, when he he did an instrument letdown, and when he did the instrument letdown, he popped out a cloud, looked back in the direction from which I was approaching, the west, and he could quite clearly see the mountain. Uh, and he said the mountain, or, or actually it was Des Lovett, the, his co-pilot who pro- passed the message, uh, I can see the mountain so you can let down, meaning I can let down, I took it, uh, below minimum descent altitude because the mountain was in the clear. Now, there's an effect where if you've got a mountain there and you've got the air approaching here that's wet and moist, it can pack up against the mountain. It gets pushed up and then it cools. And so this side of the mountain, it's cleared area, so you can see quite clearly the yeah, mountain. Yeah. But I'm in cloud but Sugden has told me that um, it's clear, so I let down. Kev Henderson said to me, Don, I'm not happy about being this bloody low uh, in cloud. And just as he said it, I was looking ahead, and there was a bloody tree in the mist. So I pulled back, went to full power, and just as I did, I came over the top, cleared area. But if I'd been 50 feet lower... You'd have hit the mountain would have bothered, yeah. And I thought, you know, but life was like that, so you just had to be very, very careful, and we were. Uh, evidence that we um, we got through without losing an aircraft in the first uh, yeah, well, that, operations. What a great baptism into Vietnam for the first time. Um, you also talk about the living conditions being somewhat sus, uh, and you actually ended up living with a north uh, north with a family in Vietnam. Yes, I, I can't remember their name sadly, but um, the background was Suggy said we we each of the officers um, had a responsibility. Mine was escape and survival. Uh, Gary Martin's was um, uh, housing, so. Day one we arrived there, they put the officers in the Pacific Hotel, which was shared by other officers in the US Army. Um, But the airmen, they put in tents, which 
you know, it's not bad, but it was right beside an open um, sewage farm. Oh, great, and, Scott. You know, you can't very well sleep in that or operate in that, but even worse, um, the incidence of disease and illness is going to go up, so you, you're defeating the emission. Okay. You can't maintain your mission if, you, if people are ill. So... Um, uh, Gary Martin scouted around very quickly, and Gary had been a, um, a council administrator in Bondi, I believe it was in Bondi, that's where he came from in Sydney. So he understood the, the housing industry, if you like, or construction, and he saw a building being um, refurbished. That became the Nokong, and we all shifted into the Nokong. But we're sleeping about six or eight to a room, uh, and sorry, the officers and the airmen came off the base as well. So the whole contingent um, from CO down to uh, Crystal Crackers and Sumpies, etc., were all in the one building, which was great in one way, but very, very, well, it wasn't difficult, but there was no air conditioning. Yep. You are sweating like a pig. Uh, quite a lot of people, myself included, got diarrhoea. Uh, and you expected to fly, so so that was less than pleasant to begin with. But anyway, the outcome of that was that um, he's sleeping six to a room. I said to Suggy, hey, uh, I've got the opportunity of living out. Can I leave? And he said, so long as you turn up for work each day, I've got no problem. So, uh, so how, did the, how did the opportunity for you to move out? I mean, did you suddenly meet a Vietnamese family and they say, hey, come and live with us, or how did that happen? No, I was knocking on doors, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't like that. I got to know the, uh, I just can't remember his name at the first, we used to call him Bugsy. Bugsy was our, um, Sergeant Bug was our interpreter. While we are waiting in Malaysia to go across to Vietnam, he was running uh, Vietnamese lessons, basic Vietnamese counting and hello, mm-hmm. goodbye, that type of thing. So I got to know him fairly well. When we are clustered together, I said to him, look, if I can get out of this place, I'd like to. Can you find out if there's any other accommodation? And he found a, f- a place where there was a flat or several flats arranged that it might be half here. So off I went. You didn't stay with that family for a long time. Was there some sort of drama that you had to leave them or what, what happened? <laughs> several things. Initially, we were in what they call the Delta area operating from Vung Tau, Vung Tau to Saigon, then in the Delta and the uh, Highlands. But after a short period of time, they had us operating in three core or uh, one core and two core, which was Da Nang way up the north, uh, beside the North Vietnamese border, then uh, two core, Nha Trang. So what happened was initially, I think around about the first six weeks I was there, I was there all the time because I was operating in the in the southern areas. But then I did a detachment at uh, Da Nang, or several detachments, and then and they were about weekly, uh, five day long, six days long changeover. I was spending more time away from the flat than I was in it. Also, at the same time. Gary Martin had, had um, worked his magic again. He'd found another residence, negotiated a deal. So the officers went into that area. So we had then the split, the officers in the uh, Villarana and the airmen in the Nokong. But that wasn't until, oh, I think about two months after I'd, I'd uh, departed the Nokong. 
But once they got established there, I was going away more and more frequently and so paying for something I didn't really need. And Sutton said to uh, one of my mates, tell Pollock he can come back with us because we've got plenty of spare, or not plenty, but we have spare accommodation now. And about the same time, it's marvellous how coincidences seem to work. I came home, I just can't remember the prelude, but what actually happened was 10 o'clock each night there was a curfew. Now, generally the American went round in Jeep and says, everybody's got to get home. And that was the warning. If you weren't off the streets by 10 o'clock, literally you could be shot on sight because nobody was supposed to be out on the streets except for the, uh, what we call them, the white mice who were sort of the national police. They wore yep. white uniform, white cap. What happened this particular evening, I've been out eating. I didn't drink in those days at all. I don't know the reason why I was delayed, but I can remember I'm coming back to my flat at the slow trot there was a house in the front of this place. There was a narrow hole down the side, less than a metre, uh, along a fence line, and my flat was behind that. But the, the along the side, the fence line was quite long, perhaps 50 metres, and well lit. The house wasn't as well lit. The light just happened to be on the side where the alleyway was. And as a matter of courtesy, I didn't go through the house to get to the flat. I mean, it was out the back, it had its own entrance anyway. But in the house, you went in through doors, two big doors. It was a quite a spacious uh, living room by 30 metres standards, I suppose, uh, five metres by five metres. Bedrooms going off left and right of that, I think. And then behind that was a kitchen. You went out of the kitchen, small patio, where you then went round to the flats. There were three of them before. Mm -hmm. So that's the background. So, okay... I'm coming down, and as I'm approaching my residence, I know it's past 10 o'clock, it's just gone past 10, I hear this Jeep coming fast behind me, or it's come around the corner, the headlights hit me, I thought, these bastards will shoot me. So I left the fence, and I thought, I'm not going to run down the alleyway there. So I ran up the steps, hurled open the door, closed the door, and I was surprised because there was a significant grip and perhaps 10 people. All I can remember is facing me were two men. Now, men were unusual in the place. They were only uh, the grandmother of the bar, her daughter or two daughters and about four or five kids. Uh, and I'd never seen men before then. I'd asked Bugsy about it. He said, well, all the blokes at the war, they've been conscripted. I said, oh, yeah, fair enough. So suddenly I see these two strangers and just the right of them, it's sort of photographic, this bloke, and there's a gap, and I can get to the door there. So you wouldn't be worried, except these blokes had pith helmets, a sort of a khaki uniform, with, um, I can remember, one of the pith helmets had a red star on it, and these blokes are armed. They've got sidearms. I thought, shit, you know, you're taking this information in, in an instant, and the bar was sitting beside one of the blokes over there. And I said, come on, well, which means thank you, sort of. I can't remember good night now, but I said good night to the Vietnamese. Nobody stirred. I go through the back door. It's been three seconds, if that. I'm through the back door, through the kitchen, out there, into my flat. I thought, these blokes are a Viet Cong. Dead set. It was very close to the port. So, you know, they could have come in a fishing junk or something like that, come up the back, and they weren't going to be moving around after 10 o'clock either. So if you like, they've been caught in the house the same as me. So I've done in my flat, locked all the doors, the shutters, took my bedding and 
the guns and uh, retired to the uh, shower, which was completely surrounded by bricks as being the safest place and spent the, a sleepless night there. In the shower. Makes sense. I can understand why you decided to move back to the uh, where all the other people were. Well, it was interesting. I came out there. It wasn't immediate, no, perhaps four or five days later. But what happened when I came out the next morning, the bar, the grandmother, was always working around the place, sweeping that type of thing. And I said, Chow Bar, Chow I just felt that, you know, there was a, a neutrality between the two of us. Anyway, a great friend of mine took me back there in that afternoon, Dave Henry, and we were going to go out for the night. And as we were leaving the flat, the bar said, hey, come here. And she had a beautiful unopened bottle of Pano marked 1885. Oh, and really? she opened the bottle for David and me, and she gave us one drink each. Now, we demolished the bottle, and that's when I left. Yeah. <laughs> but it was this agreement, I hadn't said anything to anybody, you sort of, you don't dob in your mates, you know what I mean? It sounds like that lady may have been an acquaintance of the Viet Cong. Well, she also gave me a gift when I left, which I treasure. It's um, recent, or four years ago, we wrote a book about the, our group in Vietnam, and I had a photograph of the coin that she gave me, and I still have the coin. Yeah, that's a nice memory. Uh, Don, let's go back to the the actual flying in Vietnam. Uh, To what extent was the weather always a challenge? The problem you had was that we arrived just at the beginning of the rainy season anyway and were very determined that we were going to put up a good show uh, without any losses, uh, not like the first day. Most of our resupply was off the coast into mainly small airfields in the interior. Now, it doesn't matter if it's in the Delta flat ground or in in the mountains, it was still away from any radio aids or any aids that could uh, permit you to land uh, in bad conditions. So virtually what you had to do was take off out of Saigon if that was the main place you were uh, picking up stores that day or people or whatever and fly below the cloud to the area to land. Um, because what we found out very quickly, uh, one or two tried it, they could probably, um, I think it was Panama Control at uh, Saigon, Panama Control could put you by radar straight over your destination. Mm -hmm. It was up to you then to descend, given the uh, incident I told you about on day one arriving in Vietnam, uh, the word had gone around pretty quick and there was nowhere in the world anybody was going to go below MDA. And and so... Uh, Below MDA is below cloud, yes. uh, Sorry, yeah, below minimum descent altitude. So you you couldn't... uh, you couldn't get into your destination, so we very quickly realised after a day you had to take off visual at Saigon and fly visual to your destination. Likewise, if you're operating from Nha Trang or Da Nang, the other major resupply bases, you took off, and uh, particularly in Da Nang, uh, you can draw a straight line on the map across several mountains um, and think, you know, it's only 20 minutes flying, but uh, it's going to take you an hour because you, you, you've got to go up to the north, you've got to come down to the south, sure, up to sure. the north again, different valleys wriggling around until you get in there. It was uh, demanding flying. We became very, very adept at low-level navigation, 
<laughs> and, uh, it saved a lot of time because uh, you took off and you, you flew visual rather than having to have somebody else direct you. We are in a, a in a war zone. So what was flying like to try and avoid ground fire? In fixed lines warfare, you, you say like the Second World War, even the First World War, you know where the pockets of flak are going to be, the, the, the anti-aircraft cannon or fire. In a guerrilla warfare, you don't know who's going to be uh, picking up a gun to have a go at you. So every time you, you're below 500 feet, you're at risk. And I say 500 feet, nobody flew at 500 feet. You either fly at five feet or 5,000. Uh, anywhere in between, you like to get hammered. So what we would do, we'd take off, fly quite low level from one place to another, which means that even in the Delta, there were areas where you had right, uh, paddy fields, but at the end of a lot of paddy fields, you would have, say, a village or a uh, row of palm trees, uh, not palm trees, bamboo. Uh, bamboo, like yeah. So if you're down low, people can hear you coming but they don't know where you are until the last moment you pop up, you're in their field of vision, pop, 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 but they've only got a couple of seconds fire at you and then you're wired again. It's not, um, we weren't getting fired at uh, continuously, uh, not like the Second World War or even the First World War, but you got the occasional angry shot. So you obviously you wouldn't know where there would have been someone down below with a particular weapon to fire at you. I mean, if you're flying over all those, uh, the bamboo fields, etc., they could be anywhere. Well, that's it, exactly. And, and if you had a clear day, you still weren't out of danger, if you like. You flew at 5,000 feet, weather permitting, and you'd get to your destination airfield, you'd spiral down to the last moment and then straighten up and, and drop it on the ground. The idea of that was the people on the ground could provide some cover for you. Right. If anybody did start to shoot at you, generally they could send out a patrol uh, or if they knew there was activity in the area, they could have uh, patrols before you arrived. Sure, uh, sure. So the, the, the caribou was not armed, was it? No. No. So, and how many are bored? the caribou on each flight? A captain, a co-pilot. Initially, we started off with one loadmaster, but they were being, you know, when you're working hard physically, loading and unloading at each place. And some of these uh, places, we might be only uh, 15 minutes, 20 minutes between loads. And so the poor lady down the back would be working flat as a tack. We'd give her a hand now and again, but we were getting nutted. So in the end, they brought up um, General Hands, who volunteered to become assistant loadmasters, uh, and they uh, they gave a tremendous uh, support to us. Yeah. But just intrude, you, you mentioned about were the caribou's armed. No, they weren't. But what happened was, after you've been flying around for a while and you see people around you, you know, literally in front of you or to the side of you shooting at you, you feel that you should protect yourself. Now, the, the loadies down the back, left and right, they had automatic rifles that they could have a burst at. So the blokes up in the front wanted to have a go too. <laughs> like, so I, I had a Swedish K and uh, occasionally I'd stick it out the window and have a go and others did exactly the same. Uh, Sorry, a Swedish K is an automatic rifle, is it? Yeah, it's an automatic weapon. It's yeah. a nine mil weapon, very short range, really, 200 metres, say. 
But uh, the main thing was, if you can see flashes coming towards you, it sort of deters you just a little bit. Yeah. Well, that was our hope anyway. And, and Don, uh, in, in the actual, you reach the, the airfield, you've got to drop stuff off at or pick stuff up or whatever. Was there any technique used to give the potential enemy the sidetrack? I mean, the way of flying in and not flying in, giving a false line. Was there any technique involved as a pilot in, in that situation? You evolved it on the on the day and the mission and the geography, if you like. You, you try to uh, keep away from cleared areas as you're descending and descend over uh, the mountains and the uh, treed areas. But an airfield has got uh, six approaches. There's the direct in, the left or the right, and you take it the other end, so you've got yep. six approaches, yep. right? There, there was a day when in fact, and used to hate what we were transferring a company of Vietnamese because there was no trust in the situation. It was a civil war in effect, okay? So if one Vietnamese company wanted to change with another, the weight part of it was the ammunition in boxes and weapons, heavy weapons, uh, mortars, three-inch mortars, something like that. And they would take, the company would take all that stuff with them and it didn't matter what you said, why don't you leave yours here and swap it with the bloke up there and we don't have... No, 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 no. We know our ammunition, we know our weapons, so we're going to take them with us. Plus yeah. their wives, children, dogs, pigs and cattle. So instead of just being an easy changeover, say two or three flights, in one day I can remember we had at least six flights into a place that wasn't very pleasant. The pickup place was all right, but the destination wasn't. It was in the Ashdale yeah. Valley, and Dave Henry was with me. We would swap trips. Anyway, he did a trip in and a trip out, and I did a trip in, trip out. And I said, David, it's getting a bit dodgy. He said, yes, and we were starting very our approaches. We, we'd land one way, and then we'd take off the way we'd, we'd landed. Finally, anyway, I can remember towards late afternoon, uh, they had our measure and they had uh, guys in the airfield and the patrol wasn't being very effective. So we're getting pot shots and we landed and took off on the last trip. I said to David, you know, what I'm going to do is stay as low as I can. And it was a an open field for fields of fire for the king. Mm. But then you got to the jungle. I said, I'm going to stay right on the deck and then... Just before we reach the dome, I'll, I'll turn sharp right and then start to climb from there. And he said, yeah, okay, agree with that. And I said, you stick your gun out. If the buggers have a go at us, you have a go at them. He said, yeah, all right. So David's on the right hand side, very, very quiet, wonderful man. And Ken Howe was down the, or had been down the back, and he was a great loadmaster. And I don't remember, I can't remember having a, an assistant loadmaster that day. But if you're going to get hit... The general condition is that this the the fire is going to be down the back because people can't lead a fast-moving target well, okay? Yeah. So Ken Howard came up the front and he said, do you mind if I stand up the front with you blokes for takeoff? He said, no, no, it'll be okay. So he sat there between the two, or stood between the two seats, and you, you put one foot either side when you're standing up the front on two um, little staunchons there that held radios in them, so he's standing up fairly high. And I, I took off, turned right, and then they started to have a go at us. 
And I can remember, aluminium doesn't stop a bullet, I promise you that, right? So I can remember sitting down, almost flying on instruments, having a peep outside, giving myself a psychological effect that I'm not going to get hit, you know, or if it hits the aircraft, it's not going to hurt me, right? Yeah. Nervous what you do in the the situation. I looked at the right, and Dave Henry's also crouched down with his gun, not doing a thing, and Ken Howard, had a quick look at him, and he's crossed his legs. <laughs> the, the male instinct. Yeah. And we got out of it. And if you've done a parachute jump or if you've jumped in the cold water, these instantaneous experiences, you know what it's like. Oh, oh, you know, you, we've got through that. Yeah, we've got through it, yeah. It was only about five seconds, if that, uh, but quite a significant amount of fire. And um, Ken Howard said, did you hear that the same thing happened to an American crew here yesterday? He said, no, no. Well, well, he said, American crew came in, they got shot, and the co-pilot screamed out to the captain, what does blood smell like? And the captain said, shit, and the co-pilot said, I've been wounded. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Don. It's a nice situation because when we got away and there was this sense of got through that, Ah, relief, ha, was I turned to Dave and said, as a joke, I said, David, you didn't fire a shot. I'll turn around, go back and have a shot at him. And he took the gun very carefully, very calmly, pointed right at my head. He said, if you take me back there, I'll shoot your bloody head off. And the way he said, I knew that, David. And then Ken Howard came up with that that story and just broke the tension. Now, we laughed and cried for the next 15 minutes going back to the I can remember the relief from tension like that is, and it just hadn't been that incident of five, ten seconds had been right through the day building up. Mm. And uh, I've I've got to ask from the listening to you thus far, as distinct from the Army in Vietnam as far as the Air Force is concerned, I mean, you had a time where you were staying with a Vietnamese family. Was there a, a togetherness of, of all the RAAF personnel in Vietnam? It, was Did you feel connected in exactly the same way as I assume those based on an Army camp did? Or, or, or were you seen as individuals? Which was it? I'm not too sure what you what you're alluding to, Gareth. But one was the living conditions, and two, flying with different. We didn't fly as crew like uh, Second World War. Say yeah, you have right. a crew in a Lancaster crew of eight. You, that's the start of your training there with those blokes, the operational tour. Uh, and unless you have a an incident where one of them gets injured, you stay as a crew. Our situation was completely different. We flew with uh, different guys every day, different loadmasters, assistant loadmasters, and particularly in Da Nang and Nha Trang, the conditions were such that even the loadmasters and the assistant loadmasters became quite fatigued. So we had support ground crew generally around about three men who would come up and their job was to maintain the aircraft for the week we were away. Mm-hmm. But in addition, they'd say, can we come with you? And almost every man, to the best of my knowledge, um, RAF transport flight anyway, uh, flew as a member of an operational crew at some stage or other. Now, later on, 42 years after the event, 
when they were giving air medals from the United States Air Force for our service in Vietnam, all those who were rostered as crew, including the loadmaster, of course, and the assistant loadmasters, got the US Air Medal. Every one of our people up there deserved the Air Medal because, by definition, they'd flown on one up, uh, at least one operational sortie. Did you feel we, I am part of the Royal Australian Air Force in Vietnam or did you feel I am part of only this crew that I'm flying with? Which, which was the bigger feeling? The bigger feeling was uh, to be part of that group of men. And if I can go forward 50 years or more, uh, it came to our attention that Suggy was having his 80th birthday some years back. We organised a surprise birthday party for him and about 45 blokes turned up, mainly from the time in Vietnam, or exclusively, so far as I can recall, the time in Vietnam. And from that, um, John Stiles, Stu Bonnet, said we should be doing this a much larger way. So about every five years, uh, well, five years apart after that time, um, we would have a reunion. And Sugden remarked uh, on several occasions that in his whole Air Force career, and he'd had more of a career than most because he'd flown bombers in World War II and uh, fighter bombers in uh, Korea and then transports in Vietnam, uh, there was no other group that he ever had been with who had reunions with all ranks and all ranks coming together. Uh, there was, you know, there might have been discipline where they're required to be disciplined, but in a way that simply get the job done. Yeah, okay, uh, okay. Might have given people the honorific of sir, but it was more a courtesy. Sure. Don, and I don't want you to dwell on all of them, but there are a series of routines that were named Wallaby 1, Wallaby 2, Wallaby 3, Wallaby 4, etc. Firstly, who came up with the name Wallaby and why? And if there's any one of those, one, two, three, four, that you'd like to reflect on, please do so. But where did the name Wallaby, I mean, I know what a Wallaby is and I know it's Australian, but where did the, the, the use of it as an insignia in Vietnam come from? Do you remember? Yeah, very well, because I wrote on it. But, oh. um, and just fortuitously, I happened to be there at each of the events. Uh, first of all, uh, in the old 38 squadron, uh, the forerunner, if you like, uh, for RAF Transport Flight Vietnam it was a whole bunch of young officers who met up with um, Qantas Airline hostesses and we used to go down at the weekend when we could to a uh, hostess flat. I think about four girls had the flat at that stage. Uh, so we got to know them pretty well. But their life was very much like ours. It was sort of, I might go down with a mate one weekend, we'd have lunch or dinner at their place. The next weekend, I'd be up in New Guinea. Another two or three bikes, four bikes would go down there, uh, and there'd be different girls there. You know what I mean? It was yep. very much. So there were no permanent relationships formed from that. But I do remember one lady called Dallas England, and they had these lovely little Qantas gold pins. Remember mm-hmm. gold pins they used to have. And um, a little, as a little boy, I have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, unfortunately, I think they've changed the symbol now and got a different pin. However, it was um, quite distinctively Qantas. I think it had wings on it and quite distinctly Australian because it had the kangaroos. Anyway, when we heard we were going to Vietnam, 
I think it was John Stiles said to Dallas England, look, could you get us some pins so as we could take it as, uh, as giveaways, you know, to people who we meet in Vietnam? And she said yes. And on the day we left Sydney Airport, Dallas rang up to us with a little box. I think there's about 200 pins in this box. And she said, that's a gift from Qantas, good luck. So off we went. And uh, we gave the pins to, to Suggy. And I think he divided off, there's about 60 of us, so he divided them off uh, five per man that we could give as gifts. When we got to Vietnam, to settle us in the operational uh, situation, we had a USAF uh, officer, US um, Air Force officer called Major Schellenberg. And um, after we'd been indoctrinated in the country for two days, he said, well, you guys are ready to go now. And he said, um, but we got to pick a call sign, an operational call sign for you. Sutton said, well, thanks very much for that. But for your service, please have this pin. And Schaumburg said, wow, what's what's this animal called? And uh, Suggy said, a kangaroo. Could we use that as the call sign? And Schaumburg said, kangaroo. He said, no. Goddamn Vietnamese wouldn't be able to say kangaroo. He said, call it something else. And Sutton said, wallaby. And thus the wallaby came from the corner's pin. There you go. Oh, thank you for that. It just, uh, it just it makes a good story. So uh, those Wallaby 1, etc. they were exercises. They were tasks that you had to complete. If you like, it's just convenient instead of getting situations mixed up. We identified operations, um, a task to be carried out weekly or sometimes bi-weekly, a 01s, so a Wallaby 01, to the north of... Um, Saigon was Wallaby 02, up to about uh, almost Nha Trang, not quite. Wallaby 03, when we started to do tasking out of Nha Trang regularly, a weekly detachment there, became Wallaby 03. And then likewise, Da Nang, when we had people based up there, became Wallaby 04. So it was just simply a convenient way of identifying aircraft. So if you heard Wallaby 04 and you were down in the Delta, you thought, ah, I know exactly where he okay, is. Okay, okay. What do you remember as the most uh, dangerous, oh, hang on, how do I put that, one where you really thought, this is it? Do you rem- Does anything come to mind in your, in your service in Vietnam about just how serious your job was and how close to ending your life it came? Yes. In both situations, had we lost the aircraft, people would have said, ah, <laughs> I, knew, I knew that would happen, but it's easy in hindsight. One of the reasons why we've, um, in the second edition of Suggy's Men, which is just about to be released, we've said, look, we're in our 80s, and it's important to write down the, the stories as completely as possible so as younger people can learn the lessons. In other words, preparation is all, but you've got to be able to alter it on the spot. But uh, be careful about altering it on the spot. What happened was there were two situations. First one was operating out of um, Saigon, a bad day, cloud base 500 feet and below. And the Viet Cong had worked out because he was a smart strategist, the old tactician, the Viet Cong. If the cloud base is 500 feet, jets can't get in here and have a go at us. So bad weather days were also, when they had the uh, forces, the days when you knew the Viet Cong were going to be attacking because you couldn't get air support in, okay? 
As a consequence, there was a base on the edge of the Mekong River. With the back to the Mekong River, the airstrip was out in front, running roughly north-south. The Mekong River there was north-south. And the um, mission control officer at um, Saigon said, Wallaby, you go and get this ammunition in. And we said, why? And he explained the tactical situation that they're running out of linked ammunition. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not like the old idea you take a cartridge and you put it in, you put it in, you put it in. Linked ammunition, it's all done for you for a machine gun. And you just simply put in the gun, away you go. And they wanted two pallets of this stuff to go in. So that was fairly weighty in the limit of the aircraft. So we said, yes, we can do it. And they said, how are you going to deliver it? Lolex or, or parachute? We thought, oh. now Lolex is you flying with your undercarriage down, your ramp open, and you drop a little parachute out the back at the critical time. It inf- goes out the back, inflates, and pulls the loads out instantaneous. Yep. Yep. And it ends up only 50, 100 metres at the most on the airfield you've dropped it on. Now, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to go flying around with an airfield under attack, uh, flying around at 60 knots or 70 knots. I'm not built that way, you know what I mean? Mm. And I also reasoned that with the undercoat and flaps down, prior to getting there, I was going to get shot down anyway, so what was the point in doing that? So we rigged it up for a Lolex load in case we could, if, if the... Uh, tactical situation was and as reported I I got it during a break otherwise I said we'll drop the stuff out when we're going in low level John Starr was the navigator superb navigator he said we're not going to get a low legs because we could hear what was going on at the base before we got to it with the radio chat he said can you blokes down the back rig for supply drop they said yes said all right what we'll do We'll get the loads both down the back. We'll have the parachutes ready to go. You put me right over the camp or approaching the camp because at this stage we're down to 20 feet or whatever. Just It was a delta area, mm. so low level. And um, the rain, the cloud base was getting lower and lower as we got towards the camp. It was only about 300 feet by the time we got to camp. We can't see anything, and John suddenly calls out, bang, we can see it. And I, yep, so perhaps three or four k's in front, I can see the the camp, and running up the camp. We've got the load by this time right on the end of the ramp. I've trimmed all the way forward, right, to, to counteract, balance the, the yep. 6,000 pounds on the ramp. What we're going to do is pop up in the clouds. So I'll brief. I'm going to pull up steeply in the cloud just before I reach the camp, go, and hopefully the stuff will drop right in the camp. That worked out as planned, right? I pulled up, went in a cloud, lots of ground fire with no hits, fortunate at that stage. And as we get further into the, into the cloud, there's less ground fire, and I... Start the, the aircraft starts to slow down dramatically at about 400 feet, 500 feet. I said, go. Immediately, this stuff's gone off the ramp. The aircraft slowly and gracefully, not all that slowly, bunts over and you go weightless. 
and the two crewmen down the back floated up to the roof. The load's gone, so they float up to the roof, and they said later they felt like two crabs because they, they reached the roof and they had to grab the webbing to come down the mm-hmm. side because they knew that gravity was going to come on sooner or later. But so far as I'm concerned, up the front, I've now got a big problem. I've taken this trim, which was for slow aircraft, was very, very responsive, uh, but through a huge range. Uh, I think it was about three or four turns of the wheel to go from full forward to full back. So I'm on full forward. I come over the top, still in cloud, and I thought, gee, I can't pull back. Because as it was getting faster, the aircraft was starting to accelerate, the stick was getting harder and harder. And suddenly we pop out of cloud. And I can remember, I was aerobatic pilot for years later, I can remember looking at the ground thinking, shh. That's about a 60-degree dive, and I've got to get out of this dive. So I'm pulling back, but I can't have both hands on the control column, the yoke, and pull back and have one hand free to do the trim. I said, John, pull back, pull back. So he came on with me, and he's pulling back. And I can remember it was initially what I planned was we'd drop the supplies We'd be in cloud, so we'd just fly away IFR to Saigon, but mm-hmm. then do an instant letdown. But in this situation, change everything, so we went at a low level. And I can distinctly remember in this dive, there was no ground fire. When we're going away, there was only the odd shot for a few seconds. And I said to John, I wonder why they stopped firing. And he said, well, they thought we bloody well going to crash, so why waste ammunition? They moved or they thought you were going to crash where they were, so they... Oh, no, 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 no. They, they saw the aircraft in such a steep attitude, they uh, thought it can't possibly pull out in time, so they, they thought, why, why waste ammunition? I understand. Listening to your recount of aspects of the Vietnam War that I didn't ever think of or consider, there must have been, and it wouldn't have been recognised then so much as it is now, but there must have been an incredible emotional impact on those in the war mental casualties during and post-Vietnam, which of course is still happening to a lot of those people degrees later. Did it affect you? It affected me, but if I can take the general point you made, nobody that I ever observed in Vietnam ever squibbed a task or showed visible signs of emotion uh, except for laughter and sort of half crying with relief after you get through a situation. But the rest of the time, uh, particularly the blanks down the back, it's all right when you're up the front, you can see it, you know what's happening, right? You, you might not like it, but you know, you've got some control over it. They were mm. just down the back doing the job, and that uh, I take my hat off to them, uh, tremendous. But um, to answer your question generally, one of the reasons why we wrote the book was to give guidance to the young, and initiated that it happens possibly to everybody. Stress for a prolonged period of time will produce adverse effects. Now, as it affects the individual, you can't say. And you can't say when it's going to happen. A whole body of men I know came back from Vietnam within a short period of time, had violent relationships, divorce, drunkenness, that type of aberration. Not extreme, but you knew about it much later when you think that was 50 years ago, that's when it starts to affect some people. I know um, talking with people, uh, divorces, years after the event, you know, with violence or drunkenness or something Mm. like that, suddenly Mm. appearing. Also, 
and I think it's happening more recently with people coming back from other conflicts, once you leave your service, you've still got the support of the blokes that you served with, but you're no longer with them, you know what I mean? But um, a lot of blokes can't cope with that and there's this dislocation they might have been in the service for 20 years they might have only been in the service for 10 leaving that and going to something else i understand i understand like start to manifest itself i believe when you came back your mother didn't recognize you on your return i'd had 13 uh, relations in the first and the second world war one of them i was highly decorated with a dsm mm and i remember him as a jolly old santa claus type and the thing what he did during the first world war storming a, a german trench and killing a whole stack of men and capturing a lot of others seemed inconceivable to me but my mother had often remarked to me prior to my vietnam experience that her relations had all been affected they were all different was the way she put it your aunts i had two aunts too but your uncles were all affected by this service during the, the, the war. I said, okay. When I came back, uh, Dave Henry, Mick Gwynn, myself, we picked out who had to be the first blokes to come back. We were doing operations on the Monday. Came back, Ron Raymond, the duty officer then said, uh, Plock, you're going home Friday. And nobody had gone home there at that stage. And I thought, what have I done wrong? And he said, no, 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 mate. Suggy just picked your name up out of a hat, so you're off with Mick Gwynn and uh, Dave Henry. So there were a few humorous incidents there, but we'll let those go. But what happened then was um, there was no communication, no mobile phones or anything like that in those days. No. no telephone contacts to Australia. So I left on the Friday, got back to Sydney on the Saturday morning, and movement put me in a taxi to take me home to my parents' place. I wasn't married then. And I can remember driving up in the taxi. I'd left Sydney. There's a, a white hair, a, a sort of black hair. My hair was very black then, uh, but white face because it was winter time, August when we went there, mm. July. Here it was, summer, and I'd been quite suntanned up there. Plus, my hair had gone white with bleaching a bit. And I hopped out, and I'd also... I left Australia 12 stone 4 and I came back to Australia uh, 11 stone 3. So quite a lot of weight change as well. So I hopped out of the taxi and I'm walking up towards the house. It was about 30 metres or so from the, the fence and my mother was on the front veranda, swooping the front veranda and I came right up to her and uh, she looked at me and she said, I know your face but sorry, I can't remember your name. Wow. So I said, it's your son. And she that dropped the broom and she screamed out to my father, Donnie's home, Donnie's home. And she had recognised her own son. That must have been traumatic, Don. It was. <laughs> Don, your story is quite yeah. remarkable and you've made the point a couple of times uh, of something you've written. Are you able to tell, because I know there's a second edition about to be published, could you tell us the title of that so someone listening to you right now can get a more detailed a look at what you and others in the Royal Australian Air Force did in Vietnam? Well, Is there a title? It's called Suggy's Men, because Suggy was the nickname of the CEO, and it's the other men. What we uh, did, everybody talks about their memoirs and writes about their memoirs, right? But we wanted to have an anthology. The ground crew 
were just absolutely spectacular while we were there. And the loadmasters and the system loadmasters, likewise, without their support, we would never have been able to do what we did. So the crews, the operational crews, might have been the blokes up in lights. But I didn't want that story. I also didn't want the story because that's been written by other people, the Raffin Vietnam, by Chris Bookard and other things. We wanted the story from the men, by the men, the survivors. And there's, um, well, there's a photograph of 11 of us, the first operational crews to go into Vietnam. There's only four of us left, natural attrition. So what we wanted from the survivors was to put particularly the ground crew and their their modest, shy bunch of buckets. (laughs) We want to get as many stories as we could from them. Just the little stories. One's come up with, we left because of a cyclone, but uh, he and four others stayed behind, including their officer, Chummy Wade, the senior engineering officer, who was a great bloke. They shifted over five tonnes of sand, loaded it from Back Beach onto a truck, brought it in and it was in sandbags and then took it up onto the roof of the hangar and laid it all over to try and stop the uh, the cyclone lifting the uh, on the roof. I mean, th- that sort of story. Lots of stories from the airmen about uh, eating in Vietnam, the swimming in Vietnam. Another thing is no other rough unit in history where almost every man did a parachute jump while he was there. And Suggy said, you want to do a parachute jump? All the blokes stuck their arms up and said yes. So it just wasn't for the air crew. The airmen also were given the opportunity. Yeah. Almost every one of them, to the best of my knowledge, did a parachute jump. So that is called Suggy's Men. Suggy's Men. Uh, Suggy's Men, the history of the uh, RAF transport flight, Vietnam, 1964-65. Okay, took, that's fantastic. took it as being the, the period of service of Suggy. He was the CEO until April the 8th. Uh, 1965. Look, thank you, more especially thank you for the time today and showing us a side that isn't often spoken about or reported on uh, in Vietnam. Uh, Your contribution and all of the men who served in your unit and units during Vietnam should feel very, very proud to be part of the Royal Australian Air Force and the Royal Australian Air Force should feel rather honoured that people like you served and I want to thank you so much for your generous time today. Thanks very much, Gareth. And just remember that a crew is more than just one person in that aircraft and everybody and on the ground was indispensable to the effort. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This 
is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.